Well, I want to thank uh, Charlie for filling in for me last week, and uh, Charlie and the students and the student ministry team and all that, and it's kind of flattering that you, you're gone for a week and you got to have a whole team fill in for you, and I'm just kidding, um, but uh, it, uh, it was great to hear the testimonies from some of our students and, and the word that Charlie got to bring last week, and if you haven't got a chance to listen to it, you can go and find it on the church podcast, but uh, this morning, as you can see behind me, we're returning to our series Tell me the story of Jesus, and if you haven't been here in a while or you're visiting, what we're doing in this series is we're taking all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're trying to put them together as chronologically as possible so we can get a deeper understanding of the ministry of Jesus Christ and what he said and what he taught his disciples and ultimately what he wanted us to learn as he taught them, and we have his words written down in the Word of God. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning, beginning in verse 38 of chapter 9. This passage is also found in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning's passage is an extension of what we looked at a couple weeks ago when the disciples began to argue amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And they really want to know of the 12 of them, which one was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus takes that opportunity to take a child and set it in the midst of them And to tell them that to be great for the kingdom of heaven, one must first become humble. And so the sequence this morning uh, carries on with this childish response of the disciples and wanting to understand greatness. And now they're going to bring another issue to Jesus. And we're going to see again how childish it is of them. We're going to begin in verse 38. We're going to read through verse 41 of the Gospel of Mark again in chapter 9. And the word of the Lord said, says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. What's interesting about this particular event here in the Gospel of Mark, it's one of the only times we find John speaking, at least in such a way that he is singled out. And we have other things that John said within the other Gospels, but rarely is he singled out like he is in this particular passage. Typically, the apostle or disciple John is attached to his brother James. They were the sons of thunder, and they were also attached to the apostle or disciple Peter. And so what also is interesting about our passage this morning is typically it's Peter who is speaking up on behalf of the disciples, and I don't know why it's John in this particular situation, but maybe Peter has lost a little bit of his bravado that he's had in the past couple days or months. We have to keep in mind, in leading up to this event, Peter has been rebuked not only by Jesus, but he's been rebuked by God speaking from heaven when he wanted to set up camp when Jesus was transfigured. And the event itself is pretty easy to figure out and understand what is taking place. John and most likely the other disciples witnessed an unknown exorcist casting out a demon. 
We don't know who the individual was. We're never given a name. But obviously, it caused some concern within the disciples, and they were trying to understand what they should do about the situation. Again, the reason for the concern is really childish on part of the disciples as they bring this scenario to Jesus Christ. It's just as childish as the argument they just previously had when they were asking about who is the greatest. Now, John, like Peter in the past, he speaks up on behalf of the disciples to bring the concern they have to Jesus. And he tells him there in verse 38, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. First, I want you to notice that it is plural demons, not just one demon. And the irony of this situation, if we've been reading through the Gospels in such a way, is The disciples witnessed this exorcism of demons happening, but shortly before this event, we have to remember, the disciples had issues of their own casting out a demon or an evil spirit from a young boy. When Peter, James, John, and Jesus came down the mount after Jesus was transfigured, there was an argument happening at the base of the mountain, which a father told Jesus, I brought my son who has an evil spirit to your disciples, but they were unwilling or unable to cast out the demons. Yet here are Jesus' disciples, and they're witnessing someone who is casting out demons, something that they previously had a problem with. Now, the complaint itself in verse 38 carries an undercurrent of pride. The disciples tried to stop the individual, but they couldn't. That's what it means. They tried to stop him. They, they could not, they didn't have the power or the ability to stop this unknown individual from casting out the demons. The word stop there in the Greek, in verse 38, means to forbid him. They were trying to prevent him. They were trying to hinder him. So not only have the disciples had issues in casting out demons, now this unknown individual is causing them issues as he's casting them out. And the reason they wanted to stop the individual or prevent him from doing what he was doing is found in verse 38, the very end of it. He was not following us. What that means is they're coming to Jesus with this complaint saying, hey, this guy is not a part of our gang. This guy is not a part of our our party. He isn't one of us. So Jesus rebukes them in verse 39. And the first thing we learn about the evidence of power is Christianity isn't a clique, but the evidence of power. Now, I wasn't here when it took place, um, when Harvest Hill was planted in the community of Stratford, but I have heard stories that there's a particular church in town that kind of got their feathers ruffled up, that another Southern Baptist church was going to be planted in town. That pastor's no longer at that church. I don't know all the details, but I'm guessing it was very similar to what I came across in my own time in ministry when we lived in Southern Illinois. I was a minister on staff as a minister of students and a minister of education. And where we lived in that particular community, there was another up-and-coming church that was in the community over. It was within a drive. It wasn't a very far commute. And they were doing things at that church that the church I was on staff at was unwilling to do. They had drums. They had guitars and bass players and multiple singers They had fancy lights, and they put coffee out for people to drink in the morning. Well, as 
people started going to that church. They began drawing young adults and young students, young married couples from our community. Well, as they started going to that church, somebody brought up there, why don't we try to do something a little different? It was a very traditional Southern Baptist church. If you don't know what a traditional Southern Baptist church, just think choirs, think organs and pianos. Think the choirs are even in choir robes. Think hymnals. Those are books that are in the back of what are called pews, not chairs. Someone brought up, we should try to do something so we can start attracting these young individuals who are going to the community over to this church. And the response was this. If they want that, they can go there and find that. But that's not who we are. Well, as these families started going, obviously they got to a point where a lot of them were going. They decided to take an, the thing to the pastor. Hey, why don't we plant a church in the community we live in? That way we can reach people in the community we live in. That was the wrong thing to say. As soon as that caught wind within the church, a lot of the leaders on the staff, I wasn't one of them, went straight to the pastor and said, you need to stop this right away. It's like they, forgive the analogy, peed on the territory. They had marked their spot of ministry. This was our place. This is our pond. And we are the only ministry that's going to happen here. We are the only church that is going to be in this place. And so there was panic. And outspoken individuals began to complain because their feathers were all up in a bunch. And like the disciples here in a passage, what they wanted to do is they wanted to stop any church or any ministry from coming into the area. They wanted to hinder the movement of the kingdom of God. They wanted to prevent the gospel from being spread because they felt, hey, this area belongs to us. We were here first. This is what the disciples are bringing to Jesus. This guy, he isn't one of us. He hasn't been called by you or commissioned by you. They felt they were the only ones that had the authority to cast out demons. After all, that's exactly what Jesus had commissioned them to do at one point in time. And now this individual, this unknown, wasn't part of their group, and he's thinking he can do this himself? What nerve. You think he could do something without their permission? This isn't the first time this happened in Scripture. If you would look into the book of Numbers in chapter 11, a young man runs up to Moses and he tells Moses that there are two individuals within the camp and they're prophesying in the camp. And at this point in time in Numbers chapter 11, Moses is the obvious leader. The Bible would later say he was one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. He saw face to face with God. And so when Joshua, Moses' faithful assistant, catches news of what is happening, he comes to Moses and says, my Lord Moses, stop them. To which Moses responds, to the report and what Joshua said by saying, were that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them all. And see, what Moses understood in that moment, even though he was the leader of the group, even though he's the one who met with God face to face, what Moses understood in that moment, that if all of God's people were doing God's work with a common goal, there would be great results which would happen. This is what the disciples were failing to grasp. 
and what Jesus is going to teach them and what he's teaching us. See, there are churches in our community who are doing great things for the kingdom of God. Harvest Hill is doing great things for the kingdom of God. And there are some churches in our community that are doing great things for the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. We may not agree doctrinally. We may have debates about doctrinal issues. But here's the promise I'm going to give you right here. They will all get sorted out when we get to heaven. They will all be clear and we will figure out things that we had wrong and things other people had wrong. Okay? As long as a church... No matter the denomination, is doing the ministry to reach people for the name of Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. As long as a church, no matter the denomination, is preaching the Bible accurately, that's all that matters. We can't control what other churches do in the name of Jesus Christ, but we can control what we do here in the name of Christ. And so we may not agree with them, but when we get to heaven, one thing I love is that when we get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to ask you, what church did you go to? Jesus isn't going to ask you, what denomination did you belong to? He's going to ask you, did you follow me? Did you know me? And did I know you as my own? And so I'm going to say as the pastor of Harvest Hill, it's not about I go to Harvest Hill. It's about I belong to Jesus Christ. I was excited to see a little over a month ago as a church, we teamed up with a church out of Springfield to help for the Bridges for Youth ministry that happens after school during the school year. And we didn't do it for publicity. It was just two different churches. And I guarantee you we have different ideas on different things. But we came together and we worked together for the kingdom of God. And as a church, as God's people, a church is a gathering of God's people, we need to pray. How can we minister in this community and how can we come along other churches to minister with them to show that we are united? As John voices his concern here in our passage, Jesus' immediate response to verse 39, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. I read from the English Standard Version. It's, it's a little clumpy here in verse 39. But this is what Jesus is ultimately telling his disciples there in verse 39. He says, anyone who does a great and mighty work in the name of Christ will not be in the next, able to in the next moment to say anything about, bad about Christ. And so the application for us is once we experience the power, we can't deny it. One of the greatest examples I've seen of this in believers typically comes from a new believer. Someone who just came to Christ, just realized that all of their sins have been forgiven, that they are now a child of God, that they have now been promised eternal life in heaven. They have been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And even though they may not understand all of that fully and all the theology that concerns those particular issues, even though they may not have one single verse of the Bible memorized, even though their Bible may be so new, the pages still stick together when they try to open it. They have this basic elementary understanding, but all they want to do is to tell people that God has placed in their life what God has done for them through Jesus Christ. 
They can't stop talking about it because they've experienced the power so they can't deny it. Some of the the greatest evangelists I have seen have been through new believers because they cannot deny the power of the gospel and the love of God that they have experienced and they want other people to experience it. There's power in it. It's changed them. It's transformed them just like it has changed us and transformed us. If you return to the book of Acts, this is exactly what happened to disciples who would later be known as the apostles. They had experienced and witnessed the resurrected Lord and the power of the love of God and the power of Jesus Christ over death. And there was no pressure outside of the church that was going to stop them from spreading the gospel. They just could not deny it. If you're here trying to figure out why Christians are so emphatic about what we believe, is because I pray it's because you have experienced the power of the resurrected Lord. And therefore, we cannot deny it. We know it as truth, and it is the only truth, and the truth that can save all people, no matter where they come from. This is why we gather at church on Sundays. It's kind of a weird thing when you think about church and what we call church or or do as church. Nowhere else do we gather in a building and sing songs together. Matter of fact, most guys hate singing songs. But we'll come to church and we sing songs. And so when people come outside and they see us singing songs, they wonder, why are you doing this? Because we're following God's lead. We're praising him as he has praised throughout the scripture. This is why when we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, we have Bible studies. And we pour hours into reading the word of God because God has spoken truth. And we know that this truth in this book has the power to save souls. So we can't deny it. But we also have to remember that there's people who won't come to church who need to have the opportunity to experience the power of Christ. And that's why we got to take the gospel to them. That's why we got to be Jesus to them. The third thing we see concerning this event is power is given to all who believe. You know, we don't know who this individual was. Simply referred to as him. We know, so we know it's a guy. I mean, if it was a girl, they would have pointed that out because girls, women in this time, in this context, this culture, didn't have authority over anything. And so we have this unknown, unnamed exorcist. He most likely had seen Jesus cast out a demon at one point in time. He most likely had heard Jesus teach and heard Jesus preach. And the issue for the disciples, again, is this guy isn't part of our gang, Jesus. He hasn't been with us. He's not with us. But this unknown individual believed the words and the power of Jesus, and he placed his faith in that, and that made him be able to do what he was doing here. You know, growing up in a Southern Baptist church, by the way, if you didn't know, Harvest Hill Baptist Church is a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Uh, My dad was a Southern Baptist preacher all his life. He still does preaching today. But growing up in a Southern Baptist church, I can't remember too many messages on the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, I, I, I can remember the stories about when the Spirit came at Pentecost. I can remember times we would have uh, Sunday school. By the way, Sunday school is a thing in traditional churches that happens before worship. Uh, we call them small groups now. But uh, anyway, um, I can remember talking about spiritual gifts and going through that and trying to understand that. Yet, I, I don't remember a whole lot of emphasis on the Holy Spirit as I was growing up. And I know there's other denominations that have a strong focus on the work of the Spirit, and, and, and that's awesome. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't agree with everything that they believe biblically. I don't think the Bible backs it up in some of the things that they believe in. But the Bible reveals that God has empowered all of his children with the Holy Spirit so we can do great and powerful works for the kingdom of God. All of his children. Young and old, to do great and powerful works for the kingdom of God. Francis Chan is a, is a pastor, he's a writer, he wrote a book called Forgotten God. And he says, a lot of believers today treat the Holy Spirit like a treadmill. They've bought it, they've bought into it, but then they just stick it in a corner and they look at it. And eventually it becomes like a, a coat rack or a, a clothes hanger. And they never use it. They know if they used it, it would be beneficial to them. But they've got it. And it's there. And so he goes on to say, merely looking at a workout machine doesn't do a whole lot. Merely talking about the power of God that he has put inside every believer doesn't do a whole lot. Merely looking at the words of Scripture concerning the Spirit, which was given to us by the Spirit, and understanding there's power here, just looking at it doesn't do a whole lot. We have to rely on the power. And we don't have enough time to unpack the entire doctrine of the Holy Spirit this morning, but I do want to look at one particular verse. If you want to turn there, you can. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And, and maybe you know this verse. You've probably heard of it before. But Paul was led by the Spirit to give us this instruction. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. So when we have fear develop inside of us in starting a ministry or starting a small group or even joining in a ministry, here's the thing the Bible's telling us, what God is telling us, when that fear comes up, that's not the Holy Spirit. When we have a fear about teaching a Bible study, that's not the Holy Spirit. When you have a fear and we're out in the world in our workplace and you feel like you should share your testimony or share the gospel with somebody, but then fear begins to boil up, guess what? That's not the Holy Spirit. When we have a fear about living according to the Word of God, even though there's people in our lives who aren't, that's not the Holy Spirit. Fear is a weapon of the enemy. And he uses it to quench the power of the Holy Spirit within God's people. Instead, the Spirit, we're told in Scripture, gives us power. Not of fear, but of power. That word power in the Greek is where we get our English word for dynamite. Explosive. I have a confession to make. I hate this time of year. It's not that I'm unpatriotic. 
Uh, I am patriotic. I hate fireworks. Now, my brother's birthday is July 4th. Every year he got a big birthday party. And here's why I hate fireworks, because someone out there decided it's a smart idea to sell people who at times become heavily intoxicated things that explode. And they tend to do it at 11 p.m. or 12 a.m. at night. Another confession, I'm not a night person. 9.30, tapping out. But I know this Tuesday... I'm going to be in bed praying things that should not be prayed about my neighbors. But we know fireworks, they explode. They're loud. They can be powerful at times. That's what the word power there in Timothy is. It is dynamite. We have explosive power dwelling inside of us. Now, there are three different words for love in the Greek. The Bible only uses two of them. The word love there in 2 Timothy is agape. Agape love is sacrificial love. It's a love which imitates Jesus Christ. The word self-control means self-discipline or sound judgment. So just in that one verse... We're told that God has given us his spirit so that we can be explosive with the gospel. We can love all people sacrificially, and we can have sound judgment when it comes to what is biblical and unbiblical. That's power. And if you're a child of God that dwells inside of you, just as like it dwells inside of me, you're saying we have to rely on it. A.W. Tozer wrote, from the day of Pentecost on to this present hour, there's only one thing on the Holy Spirit's mind, to fill the church with his glorious presence. His message is simply, empty yourselves, and I, the Holy Spirit, will come and fill you to overflowing. Come back to our main passage here in Mark. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 44, the one who is not against us is for us. So the work of faith and the power of the name of Jesus and the Holy Spirit flowing from God's people reveals something to us again, that the power reveals our allegiance. Jesus is telling his disciples, whoever and anyone is invited to join the kingdom's work and the work of the kingdom and the faith and the power of Jesus' name is not copyrighted by any individual or by any church. In the book of Acts, in chapter 19, we find this comical story concerning Jewish exorcists. And what happens, you can read it later if you want, it's Acts chapter 19. These Jewish exorcists hear of the power that is coming out of the Apostle Paul. His teachings, and he's able to cast out demons and and heal people. And so they come up with this plan. They decide amongst themselves that they're going to start casting out demons, and they're going to use the name of Jesus much like Paul's been doing and much like this man here in Mark chapter 9 is doing. And so when they encounter this man who's possessed by a demon, they attempt to cast it out by saying this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And so unfortunately what happens 
is the man that is possessed by a demon. He looks at these men and responds, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? This led the demon to use the man to overpower all these men, these Jewish men. They beat him, and then they stripped him down so they had to walk through the streets naked, bearing their shame. I bring that up because the demon recognized these men in Acts were only using the name of Jesus as a magical incantation, but they didn't actually believe in the power of Jesus, which Paul did. The enemy knows who does and doesn't belong to God. He recognizes the power within God's people, which is why he tries to stop it from manifesting itself. And it's also a reminder If you are not saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, and you are therefore powerless against the enemy. Power to do works for the kingdom not only shows our allegiance to the kingdom, but it shows our allegiance to one another. In the Gospel of John chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples and tells us that the people of the world will know that we belong to him by the way we love one another. In John chapter 17, which is known as Jesus' priestly prayer, he prays for us to be one, as his Father and he are one. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And I try to really enunciate the A, singular. I mean, as God's people, there are no longer nationalities, there are no longer political ties, there's no longer skin color because we are all one. We are one nation as one people serving one kingdom, and that's where our allegiance lies. Final thing I want to see comes out of verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And what it reveals is the smallest acts reveal the power. In Jesus' day, the giving of water was a normal practice of hospitality. It was not something you applauded. It was not something you say, hey, did you see what Charlie did? He gave Jason a cup of water. He should get a star. No, it, it was a normal practice. It was just something you do. You saw someone who's thirsty, you would give them something to drink. It was nothing out of the ordinary. And disciples had just witnessed this man, who wasn't a part of their band of merry little men, casting out demons, something they had recently struggled to do. Because casting out demons, that's a, that's a big task. You know, when Jesus cast out demons, there's one of three responses. Either people were in awe of it, they were scared to death of it, or they were confused on what in the world was happening. But every time it was recognized. That's power. So I have to keep in mind the disciples have just been arguing about who's the greatest. And now someone outside of their group is doing something great. Jesus brings them back to this lesson of humility. He lets them know that in the eyes of God, there is no act, whether it's big or small, that is done for the kingdom, which goes unnoticed. I think a lot of people 
maybe even here today need to understand that sometimes we see people on the worship team and we're like, man, I, I just, I couldn't do that. We sit in someone in Bible study and we hear them teaching or preaching. We're like, wow, that's, I wish I could do that, but I just, I can't do that. We see people leading a group or taking people on a mission trip and we're like, ah, that'd be so awesome, but I can't do that. You know something we need to stop doing as Christians? Putting certain people in the limelight and making them celebrity Christians. Because Jesus says the smallest act does not go unnoticed by the Father. And so if you're wondering, how can I get involved in ministry? How can I use the spirit that's inside me? Here's the thing. Get involved in the nursery. Get involved in children's church. There's two individuals that have been ministering this entire time, and you didn't even know they were doing it. Joe and Ethan in the back. Out of sight. Except for me, I can see it. There's people right now ministering out in the foyer to all of us in this moment. There's people back in the special needs ministry, and you're like, we had special needs ministry? Hey, we do. But they don't do it for publicity. They don't do it for fanfare. They don't do it so we post on Facebook, hey, so-and-so wiped a diaper today. They do it just to be plugged in. Because God says that nothing goes unnoticed in all acts, even the smallest ones, like giving a cup of water to someone is something great in the kingdom. Lesson of verse 41 is no act, big or small, goes unnoticed and all reveal the power of God working through and in his people. Ties back to what Jesus said previously when the disciples were arguing amongst themselves in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And this is the lesson Jesus is giving. He's letting his disciples say, know that, look, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And this is the model that they and we are to follow. This is what we are to imitate. We don't come here to be served. We gather here to serve and to love one another. And we don't do it for fanfare. We do it for the kingdom, and we do it through the Spirit. This takes back something I, I said just previously. Only God's people have the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of their eternal destination for heaven. It does not spoil, it does not fade, it cannot be taken away. What that means is that if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, then you don't have the Holy Spirit, and therefore you're lost. But God wants to change that about you today. And that's why we preach the gospel. That God has created us for a relationship with Him. And it is our sin that separates us from that relationship. And we can try to do enough good things, but we can't remove our sin problem. That's why Jesus Christ came. He paid the price for the sins of the world. He died on a cross. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death and the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life for anyone who had placed their faith in him alone. And the Bible says if you're here, you admit to God that you're a sinner, you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ did what he did in dying for your sins and rising again, and then it says you must confess him as your Lord and Savior. And that word confess comes out of Romans chapter 10. It means you must make it publicly known. 
And so we come to this time of invitation. We sing a song and people stand up and I stand here. And if you ever wonder, why does he stand there? Because if you need to accept Jesus Christ and become a child of God, I stand here and invite you to come. Pray with you and we'll celebrate with you. And I guarantee you there will not be a person in this room who won't be happy for you. I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us in the song. And Ashley. And if you need to accept Jesus Christ today, I want to pray for you to come down this aisle. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for the power of your word, the power of your spirit, the power of the empty tomb. Father, if there is someone here this morning and they hear that invitation to accept you as their Lord and Savior and find forgiveness and be given eternal life, and they know that was spoken to them because your spirit is speaking to their heart in this moment, Father, I pray that your spirit would give them the courage and the power to come down the aisle and let today be the day of their salvation. Thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Pray your kingdom and will will continue to be done in this time. And praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.